0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this.
1: Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom slash socks. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest, at long last, we hadn't realized how long it had been, is Sam Vecini, NBA draft expert for The Athletic. Had a great conversation going through the 2020 draft class, some of my thoughts on the Team USA Junior National Team mini camp that I went to, which is high school class kids, and team building, lots of fun stuff in between. Conversation runs about an hour and a half. Brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. There's also a conversation with Dave Mason of betonline.ag. After my conversation with Sam, we talked about in-game betting, which I thought was really interesting. And then the podcast one survey, which I talk about during during the show, podcastone.com slash survey can support the show. Lots of great stuff. I'm confident that you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: How are we doing, Danny? It's uh, good to be here. I've hopefully, hopefully, I sound better than I normally do on this podcast because, uh, as I mentioned on the last episode of the Game Theory Podcast, I've finally rigged up like this nice diorama-looking setup for my microphone, and uh, hopefully the sound quality is coming in clear because I know that sometimes it gets a little bit, uh, a little bit scratchy from time to time.
0: It it definitely seems good. Yeah, I've I've changed my setup a few times in the last little while, but. I realized it's kind of amazing considering how frequently the two of us talk. I, when I was looking at our Skype, we we haven't done a podcast in four months. So, Dude.
1: That's- yeah. Well, yeah. We talk like three or four times a week. But it's – yeah. I mean like this is what happens when I get married and then have a million things going on work-wise. And plus uh, just like a, you have a million things going on in terms of trying to figure out what's going on with you. So yeah, I'm glad that we're doing it again. We need to make it happen more often. I don't think that's going to be a problem.
0: But I, it, we, so there's, there's, is, that does mean that there's a lot to get to. And I think where I want to start is the 2020 draft class college basketballs getting closer to being underway. I know the Champions Classic is upcoming and that's going to be a good slate as it always is. And I mean, we'll, we'll go big picture and we'll go small picture. But I, I think one of the big picture places I want to start is how is this class? As an NBA person, you know, like, is it is it more concentrated on a few schools, like, like Duke last year, or is it a little bit more spread out this time around?
1: It's not like last year when Duke had, you know, uh, all three of the top recruits in the country coming in. Uh, then you could also kind of... I guess narrow your focus a little bit, just because like Kentucky had three first round picks last year and PJ Washington, Tyler Hero and um uh, Keldon Johnson. Uh Virginia had DeAndre Hunter and always played really good games in the ACC. And, uh, you know, Gonzaga had a few very interesting players, right? This year, I do think it's a lot more spread out. I, I think that we're going to see uh, evaluators really have to canvas the country, canvas the globe realistically, because it's a strong international class as well, um, to find players, because this 20, uh 2019 recruiting class uh, freshman 2020 class is not super great at the top. There are some standouts, but this is not a year where coming into last year, we felt really good about Zion Williamson, RJ Barrett, um, Cam Reddish, even to little who ended up like kind of falling on his face a little bit, still ends up going in the first round. We felt really good about those guys coming into last year this year. I think because of the new NBA draft rules that have uh, seen an erosion of uh, upper-class talent. Uh, I think that more players are just declaring and deciding to stay in the draft. It is a bit more difficult to find where the talent is this year uh, and to exactly locate who are the guys that we need to watch going into the year. It's going to be more of a year where, you really need to throw a wide lens on things and first identify who the best players are. Like in the past, we've been able to identify these guys very quickly in high school. This class, there are those guys, but there are fewer of them than there have been in the past.
0: Something that on the preliminary, you know, what I've heard and the very limited amount that I've seen that I find interesting about this class is it is extremely guard heavy. And yeah. that is, can bring a couple of things. One, the NBA needs guards. Like that, that's At a very basic point, I mean, I've talked about the importance of 48 good minutes at point guard. That is extremely important. And even if it's rotation level point guard type guys, that's really important. But Lost in the Shuffle, you and I talk a lot about wings. And yeah, I would rather have a player who's 6'8 than 6'4". There's also a dearth of good shooting guard talent. And so some of these players, it's going to have to be defined whether they're a lead guard or an off guard and who they can defend best but just having more players who defend the guard positions and who play the guard positions is interesting and so we'll we'll start there and then i have another thought on that too
1: yeah so this year there is a bit of a nebulous uh you know categorization of who is who right um anthony edwards i think uh, the idea is, oh, this guy can be your Victor Oladipo, your Dwayne Wade, your James Harden type of shooting guard that also acts as a lead guard, right? And I don't mean to say he's as good as those guys necessarily, although I think he has real upside. Uh, I just mean to say that we've now entered an era where teams are just putting the ball in the hands of their best player who is a guard and saying, go create, Uh you can say the same thing about R.J. Hampton in this class, who's currently playing in the NBL. To a certain extent, you can say the same thing about LaMelo Ball, obviously, who's also playing in the NBL. Um, it, it's a very intriguing class insofar as a lot of the best guards are definitely more score-first uh, guards. You can even say that about Cole Anthony, Teo Maladon, um Uh, You know, uh, Tyrese Maxey is a great example of that. So, yeah, it's a very intriguing class in terms of uh, the categorization of positions, even if a lot of these guys do bring like genuine NBA level talents to the table.
0: So what I alluded to before is it could end up being the old hallmark is that it takes young guards a long time to develop. And even the ones who look really good could go back to Mike Conley as a great example here. It takes a while for that to actualize in terms of the NBA just because of the huge uptick in talent. And so I think that could be another notable facet of this class is that if it's it's guard dominant and these players who have a little bit of nebulous roles, a couple of big questions will be how do they develop? And then also, which ones are good enough off ball that if it doesn't work out, whether that's because they play with superior talent or because they're just not as good on ball as we hoped— that they can still make a, a good living in the NBA, that they can still be, a, let's, let's say, a starter in the league. Because remember, almost every NBA player was the best player on their college team, and now that the best, best players on your college team are getting the ball, whether you're 6'2 or 6'8, it changes this a lot round a little bit.
1: Right, like Tony Allen was the Big 12 player of the year who averaged like 18 points a game at Oklahoma State. And was this like, I don't want to say a dominant on ball force, but he was really, really good on the ball uh, in college. He was so much more athletic than everyone. And then once he gets to the NBA, he has to become this defensive stopper. I think that when it comes to these guys, the ancillary skills such as how good of a defender are you? What are your defensive tools? um, What is your decision making like? Obviously, what is your shooting off the catch like? plays just such a critical role in terms of how many of these guys can actually translate to the next level. Like uh, I'm trying to think of an example of, you know, the past couple of drafts where um, we've seen. So like Chris Dunn, for instance, right? Like I really liked Chris Dunn coming out cause I thought he'd figure out the jump shot. I obviously still love the defense and I thought that he'd be able to create to a higher level than what he's shown. He just can't really uh, create at the next level, but A big part of why he still can't be a starter at the NBA level, despite the fact that he is uh, really, in my opinion, like an exceptional defender for like a point guard. He's really good on the ball. He's switchable. He battles uh, bigs whenever he gets caught in switch scenarios like there's a lot he can do defensively. But you can't keep him on the floor because he doesn't make good enough decisions and he can't shoot the basketball. So. I have hope that those skills can come along and he can start playing more of a limited usage role and become something of a Tony Allen defensively that can really make an impact. But it's just really, really hard when you don't have that offensive skill set that really fits within today's NBA. As a non-lead guard, I mean that.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense to me. And yeah, it's been mean, figuring all this out, and as, as you got into like the, the idea of the value being so different between the two. Like, I mean, God, it's gonna. I, I wonder how a lot of this is gonna. How a lot of this is gonna shake out. And then there's also a value. Like, I, I've granted, I've been higher on Tyus Jones than most people for a long time, but I think about Trey Jones with this, where there's a distinct chance that Trey Jones ends up not being an NBA starter. I mean, I saw I saw a fair amount of him because he played at Duke, one of the few teams I watched a fair amount last year but if he can play 15 to 20 minutes a game and maybe be a spot starter ideally
1: be a spot starter there's still value to that yeah that's probably worth the 20th pick in this draft yeah Uh, but here's the problem with trey so trey is much more athletic than tyus like he's just quicker uh he has a little bit more burst he has uh a little bit more lift i think as well as an athlete i think he's Probably pretty darn close in terms of just being a good floor general, uh, hitting his guys in the right spots, being able to collapse the defense and kick out. But the difference for Tyus and Tyus didn't get this until his freshman year at Duke. Uh, He was not a good shooter coming out of high school. The difference for Tyus was that he had that jump shot to be able to really keep defenders off balance. Right now, Trey is just a total non-entity as a shooter, and that kills his value even to Duke. Like The fact that he really keyed their defense at the point of attack was so essential to what Duke was doing that they had to keep him on the floor, but just with the way that that lineup operated, he was a significant hindrance to them on offense at times because obviously you're going to have the ball in R.J. Barrett's hands. You're going to have the ball in Zion Williamson's hands. Uh, They didn't really utilize Cam Reddish in this way, but in the games that Zion was out, they had Cam Reddish operate on ball. Um, Tyus was often asked to play the role, or Trey was often asked to play the role that Tyus sometimes occupies in today's NBA where he's like, Kind of a secondary lead ball handler initiates the offense in the half court regularly, um, but also can just flare out in space whenever he has to, because he's a pretty good shooter. Trey can't really play off ball right now because when he does teams, just don't even go out past 15 feet when he's spacing from beyond the three point line, because they know he's trying to pump and drive. Uh, And if he shoots it, that's a win for the defense because he's like a 25% three point shooter. So it's really, really hard. I think, to figure out where someone like Trey Jones falls in the ecosystem of the NBA if he can't shoot. Because if he can't shoot, then he's just Chris Dunn except with less physical tools.
0: Well, and that ties in with what we talked about before, where as coaches, both at the college level and the NBA level, become more comfortable giving the reins of their offense to non-point guard-sized guys, point guard-sized guys who can't shoot become a much bigger problem because they can't do as much. And also, the league is one of the separation skills right now is can you make a shot off the dribble? I mean, that's really, you know, for let's say Damian Lillard on down, that is the defining characteristic of a lot of guys that are ball dominant now. And so if if Jones doesn't check either of those boxes, it becomes a lot harder... To play him because now that the bigger guys are getting more comfortable with the ball, you don't have to necessarily lean on somebody like that. And while I I disagree with some of the elements from team building here, an example is what the Lakers are pulling off. That when you have LeBron James, then your guard rotation can have more Avery Bradleys and more KCPs and more Danny Greens and fewer just traditional point guards. Well, the guy –
1: the guy the Lakers should be playing is Alex Caruso. Like he's just a yeah, Well, the he, one that he, he makes was hurt, so I,
0: I think that I think that that might be part of the reason. But I agree with you. Yeah, Caruso, and and then you know to an extent Quinn Cook, though Quinn Cook is limited in ways that I'm very familiar with.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I pulled up Trey Jones numbers uh, shooting the basketball last year. So he took 84 shots off the catch last year, made them at a 27.4 field goal percentage, 41.1 uh, effective field goal percentage. That's just terrible Uh, those shots should be among the highest efficiency typically you want to be in the 60 range on those shots Um, off the dribble he made them at a 31.2 field goal percentage 31.8 effective field goal percentage so he only made one shot from three off the dribble last season it's just that he's a total non-spacer right now that's just not going to get it done as a lead guard at the next level unless you're talking about just like a change of pace guard off the bench and even then those guys still need to be able to bring at least something to the table as a shooter and like look Trey Jones might develop as a shooter but we haven't seen it yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that that might hopefully it takes time and it and it'll get there but we're going to have to see. And something I want to ask you about just cuz I'm interested in where the, and how this is going to play out is there are a couple of teams that have A pair of highly touted prospects and and that can be an interesting dynamic because like how do they interact and where i want to start with that partially because i know one of them a little bit more is arizona arizona nico mannion and josh green are gonna start on the perimeter together you'll know their rotation whether they're both the one and the two or one and the three or something like that but how do you see their games fitting together this year
1: yeah i think it'll work really well between those two uh Nico is really, really good at half court efficiency, but also really good at getting out on the break and creating opportunities. And I think that that's where, uh, Josh green particularly is going to be very intriguing early on for Arizona is he has the ability to create, uh, on the, or, uh, in transition, in transition out on the break and, uh, just being able to run the floor and beat guys down the floor. Uh, defensively, I think Josh green, you know, hard nosed dude. That's really going to give a ton of effort on that end. Uh, Nico, not so much, but I like Nico a little bit more, if only because on ball creator, whereas with Josh, I have some worries about the jump shot mechanics. His, uh, his numbers actually aren't terrible as a jump shooter, but I think the jumper is just a little bit flat right now. And he has like kind of mechanics where his elbows out and, uh, he kind of brings it from up under his chin. And th- those are the kind of things that he's going to have to fix. But if he can fix the jump shot and become something of a shooter, All the rest of the tools are there for like a really interesting wing prospect in today's NBA. Six foot five, six foot ten wingspan, really great athleticism, great motor, uh, tries really hard on the defensive end. There's just a lot there that could really work at the next level.
0: Yeah, and I I was excited about that pair because it did seem like their games were symbiotic. And I don't know the rest of Arizona's team well enough to know whether it's going to make a cogent picture. But
1: I like it. It it should. Yeah. It's always a question. Yeah. Like they're going to have Nico. I would imagine, I, I believe that Jamar Baker, who was at Kentucky, I don't think that his waiver has been like decided upon yet. As far as I know, um, he's trying to be able to become eligible immediately. Uh, if he can do that, I would imagine that he'll start is like kind of a floor spacer. if not, it'll be a UCI, uh, UC Irvine transfer named Max Hazard, who is again, another really good shooter. So regardless, you're talking about, uh, Nico next to a really good shooter, likely next to Josh green, uh, as their three guards that they play. And then chase Jeter will probably start at the center. I've heard good things about the way they like Zeke Naji, who's another freshman there. Uh, it's possible he could start at center or start at power forward. You know, they, they could go two bigs. They still have Ira Lee. Um, they got another guy in named Stone Gettings. Like, there, there's just, like, a lot of um, uncertainty in the front court. But I think from a back backcourt perspective, uh, they have the right piece there in either Hazard or Baker to make the fit work with uh, Josh Green and Nico.
0: I think the pairing that will be most interesting to a lot of people, considering one of the two guys, is the maybe the most frequent number one prospect that I've heard so far in this class is Memphis. And so Memphis Penny Hardaway's team, James Wiseman, seven foot center, and uh, I'm going to get his last name wrong, but uh, precious is it Achua?
1: Yeah, Precious Achua. I Achua, Achua it's, it's one of the th- it's one of the two. We'll get um, there. Yeah, so. Really interesting. I've also heard good things about Boogie Ellis, who is someone that I've really liked for a while. Um, I think he's more of a two and done as the lead guard, but he is more of like a scoring lead guard that I think can really get some things done. Um, There's also been some rumors about uh, uh, like kind of a, a guard, you know, slash like, you know, wing player named Damian Baugh who uh, I would expect to start either him or Lester Quinones uh, next to Achua, DJ Jeffries and James Wiseman. They're almost certainly going to start five freshmen, which is kind of insane. Um, I will be very intrigued to see what James Wiseman looks like at the college level, because I've talked about this before. I have concerns that Wiseman doesn't really understand what he is on offense. Um if you talk to him and who knows how much this is just, you know, kind of bullshit and like he's saying aspirationally what he wants to be versus like the way that Penny will play him, but like he thinks of himself as like a Giannis, as like a big ball handler and that's just like kind of not his skill. He can Put the ball on the deck for someone that's like seven feet tall, but he's not like a creator with the ball in his hand. He can shoot it a little bit, but he still needs to really iron out that consistency. To me, you want him just rim running and screen and roll constantly. You want him pick and popping constantly. Um, I don't even know that he can really short roll and pass quite yet. There have been some signs that he can do it, but... That's kind of the role I see on offense, and uh, I'll be interested to see if he tries to do a little bit more than that. And then defensively, I think he's legitimately one of the five best prospects I've seen since I've been doing this. Um, and that's since 2014, so this will be year seven. Uh, he is he is ridiculous on defense now. It used to be that you could kind of push him around because he didn't have a super low uh, – Super strong uh, lower half of his frame, so you could really use his high center of gravity and just like move him all over the court. Uh, late last year, or maybe like midway through last year, like once December rolled around, from the tape I've seen, and you know, going to McDonald's, going to Hoop Summit, having seen this up close and personal again, uh, it's really hard to score on him inside. He is seven foot one in shoes with like a seven six wingspan, and just has all sorts of Uh, He actually has like bounce to be able to get up and really contest the basket off of two feet. So then you throw in the fact that he can move his feet on the perimeter a little bit. He is a very, very, very impressive defensive prospect. I'll be really interested to see how Memphis utilizes him on that end of the floor, even more so than how they utilize him on the offensive end. Uh, Although the offensive end is a bit scary for me right now.
0: And this will come up when I talk about the junior national team minicamp that I went to with, with Mobley. But I, I'm, for whatever reason, significantly more comfortable— well, I know the reason—significantly more comfortable with a center who has kind of weird or still figuring it out offensively if they have the defensive tools. Because sometimes being you know a high-end college player, a professional player with the coaching that they're going to get— those things can be the sign of kind of like basketball precociousness, which I actually kind of like. And, and for, a, you know, with the league evolving the way that it is, we're seeing centers that have really high leverage within their offense. Jokic is the prototype here, but also Carl Anthony Towns getting empowered and to an extent, Joel Embiid and a few other guys. So with Wiseman, it is, it is concerning because we've seen players at many times in the past that want a little bit too much and it becomes a problem. But at the same point, with him being this young, at from an NBA perspective, as opposed to a how-good-he's-going-to-be-at-Memphis-this-year perspective, I'm kind of okay with that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, in general, I think that that's definitely fair. I mean, you look at the way that Miami, especially, who I think has one of the best development systems in the NBA, really just lets their— guys after they draft them explore the studio space right like you have bam at a bio at summer league as a sophomore bringing the ball up the floor constantly and i see him do it in the nba um tyler hero played a ton of point guard uh at the summer league level this year i think in part because they wanted him to get used to having to make decisions on the fly uh I don't think he's going to be a point guard long term, but I think he is going to be someone that is going to have to you know, run off of screens, pump fake, get into the lane and get a defense into a uh, scramble situation with a kick out to an open player. So I think that, you know, you do want to balance that idea of letting kids just organically get better in the way that they want to get better, as well as trying to target specific skill areas that will translate to success long term it's a very it's very tough it's it's not something that i think a lot of teams have figured out the right answer on because it goes into both uh, identification and development once you hit the nba level which uh, can be just like a whole can of worms is draymond green so eloquently discussed when talking about marquise chris
0: yeah that's going to be something worth watching uh what do you know about about precious achua is he gonna i mean i know that i've heard some people that really really like his game
1: so yeah definitely a guy that has mixed opinions uh across the nba He is a six foot nine player with like a seven foot two wingspan or something along those lines. Has like a nine foot plus standing reach. So like has the standing reach of a center. Uh, Definitely a high motor, high energy player that is just productive every time that he's on the floor. Uh, How often does that production lead to good results in terms of what you're looking for uh, in terms of efficiency. I think it's hit or miss, but I think the big thing that he has done over the course of the last year is he's added the three point shot. He's now like a guy that I believe in shooting three pointers off the catch. I'll be interested to see what he looks like this year. Cause I think that that's going to be, Kind of a big role for him is being able to pick and pop, being able to stretch it as a spot up guy because Penny and uh, Cody Topper, the assistant that they just hired, uh, who was with the Phoenix Suns the last couple of years. Like they really want to run an NBA pro style scheme, and that's going to involve having like a four man that can really, really space the floor. So uh, I, I am intrigued by Achua as like a high motor uh, guy who can put the ball on the deck a little bit, but still needs to improve there, who can shoot the ball a little bit, still needs to iron out consistency, um, but has all sorts of length and athleticism and motor and hustle and defensive tools that – honestly, like I think really could translate into him being a top 10 pick pretty easily.
0: Do you think that those two guys are going to mesh well? Or is that, that to me, Wiseman and Achua seems like it might be a little bit more of diminishing returns, though it could be nasty if it works.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think that it can work. I think that it probably is more likely to work uh, at the college level than it is unlikely, if only because Wiseman, is a pure center, and they will play him at the center position. Um, this is not like a situation where Duke is telling Vernon Carey that they're going to play him at the four, right? Or they're telling Wendell Carter they're going to play him at the four. Be- or or, or Aiton when, when he
0: was in Arizona.
1: Or eight at Arizona, right? Like, they'll play Wiseman at the five. They'll play Achua at the four. The skill sets are Fairly complementary offensively and then defensively. I mean, it's just length and athleticism all over the place. So uh, I think that they're just going to kind of overwhelm a lot of uh, smaller teams in the AAC just because they're going to hustle. They're going to play hard and they're going to just they're going to be limbs everywhere uh, cutting off driving lanes because the floor is just that much more condensed in college, obviously.
0: Yeah, especially, and and that will be just really interesting to see if they can shut it down. And and also, I, I mean, that conference is not particularly competitive. How, how, how good is Memphis' conference this year? With realignment, I don't know where anybody is anymore.
1: Yeah, it's going to be pretty good. I mean, they have Houston, who I think is the favorite because Quentin Grimes just got eligible immediately there. Um, they also have some interesting prospects as well, Dejan Giroux, Nate Hinton, Um Uh, Who else? Who else do we have in that conference? Why is my brain blanking? It's uh, Cincinnati's league. They're going to be interesting just because of a new coach. Um, Temple should be pretty interesting. UCF uh, should be pretty solid this year um Wichita State should be pretty solid this year uh Connecticut always has talent at least and I think under Dan Hurley they're still kind of figuring things out in year two USF it's actually like kind of a deepish league for a league that isn't in the traditional uh power structure because USF honestly is like pretty interesting athletic and uh defensively sound as well
0: that's good to hear because it I mean as much as it can be fine to have talented players that's at different schools you know like playing good competition is something that i think really helps and i mean granted we just saw john Morant do it without it and jarris garland barely played but you know he, he would have would have kind of been in that mold as well if things had gone well Plenty more to talk about with San Vecini, but first message from betonline.ag. This is a great time in sports, including a great time to check out betonline.ag. That can include the hashtag Sportsnet Challenge. We're predicting NFL games. I was one of the winners for Week 7, which is pretty exciting. Uh, I tweeted about that. If you want to get information, you can, win, uh, you can win money with betonline.ag, which is awesome. But overall, you have NFL going on strong. College football, things are really getting exciting. Wisconsin at Ohio State this week, Notre Dame-Michigan, Auburn-LSU, but also the World Series. We have the World Series going on, um, and NBA, of course, people listening to this are into that. So whatever you're into, check out BetOnline.ag and use the podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus, which is absolutely fantastic. And we also have a, a $5,000 uh, season-long charity contest, which is great. So a lot of different things you can check out. Uh, and also you can do in-game betting, which is actually something I'll talk about later in the show with Dave Mason. So lots of different things to check out, Use, but make sure that if you do and you should use the podcast one promo code to tell them that you came from us and get a 50% signup bonus, which is absolutely awesome. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Uh, two other pairings. I think we could spend a little less time unless you're really into it. UW, the University of Washington, Jaden McDaniels and Isaiah Stewart. That's an interesting pairing. And and am I correct that Jaden McDaniels is the brother of Jalen McDaniels, now Charlotte Hornet?
1: That is correct.
0: And so, uh, and, and Stewart I've only seen him a little bit, but I remember that he's he is pretty much. Last I recall, he was well, I thought of as a straight five. Is that still true?
1: Oh yeah, he's definitely a straight five. He's improved a little bit as a shooter, but he is like full on a five man. He's like six foot nine, so he's not going to be like the biggest five man. But he is. He does have like a seven foot three wingspan. He's two hundred fifty pounds. Like he is so physically strong. Like he would not look out of place in terms of strength playing in the nba right now like he he is just gonna bully guys he's actually my pick uh outside of cole anthony who i think will probably be the most productive freshman this year uh he would be number two for me in terms of guys that will just be dominant uh in terms of production as a freshman in college this year
0: wow that that's high praise considering there are some intriguing guys in this group
1: yeah and like look i mean on some level like his type of big man is not super duper valuable traditionally in the NBA now. Right. Um, he is like a, uh, I don't want to say like a full on back to the basket, but he is just like a rim runner, super high motor, uh, good athlete, strong carves out space with ease, rebounds the hell out of the basketball. Um, one of those guys like in the Montrezl Harrell mold that really just does the dirty work. Now he's bigger and honestly, like I think he's stronger than Montrezl Harrell is, which says a lot. Right. Um, so I think that he has potential to be like a very real NBA starter as a center because of that. Uh, Cause I think that because of that extra size, he's probably going to be a bit more equipped to defend inside than Montrez is. But uh, I do look at him and see a guy that, you know, I, I would not have taken him in the top ten in last year's draft, but in this year's draft, it's just hard to find guys that are sure bets to be good. I think in the NBA. Yeah,
0: and as we've talked about that, there is definitely value to that. The last of the pairings, at least as I see it, and you can add them if you if you see any, is Kentucky. So Kentucky, Maxi, and then Whitney. That's an intriguing combination as well.
1: It is, yeah. You know, Tyrese is a. Uh, just a scorer uh, extraordinaire kind of like he is, he is just such a interesting bevy of moves to be able to get separation for his jumper. He has really great touch in the mid range, really great touch on his floater game. He really tries to improve the way that he goes about finishing. And he's just like, anytime you spend even like a second around Tyrese Maxi he's just like an energy provider. Like you feel better about yourself after having talked to Tyrese Maxey. Like he's just like a fun kid to be around. Um, And then Khalil Whitney, it's interesting. So I was, I've been a little bit lower on him throughout the process. I get the appeal, six foot, six wings, seven foot wingspan, super athlete in terms of explosiveness, but he's always struggled to translate that explosiveness to a functional way on the floor. Uh, I watched him at Nike Basketball Academy this summer out here in L.A., uh, Thousand Oaks. It was at the Kobe Bryant Mamba Sports Academy thing. And he was he had figured out how to engage in the game in a little bit. Uh, stronger of a manner. And it was translating on defense. It was translating in the way that he ran the floor and was just productive. His jumper needs to be ironed out in terms of consistency, but I think it's going to be, uh, not necessarily a long haul trek to get there in terms of upside. He really does have one of the higher upsides in this draft. Now we always talk about these guys. Like I just talked about like basically every skill in his toolbox he has to get better at, right? And that's not to say that all of these guys don't have to get better. He particularly has a higher marginal threshold that he needs to improve upon to get uh, to the level where he can be like a top five pick. He's just a little bit further away right now in terms of his skill development. But if it comes along, he is he's very different. He is a real athlete with real length, with real size, who has potential to shoot it. And those guys are hard to find on the wing position.
0: Is your instinct that we'll know during this season or could he potentially be maybe like a two and done or or maybe a team just has to take him without knowing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Kentucky guys are so hard. They're just so hard because there are so many good ones. And if you're not ready to compete immediately, Cal will kind of put you in a box a little bit and say, hey, this is what you can do well now. We need to win games. So, This is what you're going to do. Right. So he's not going to give Khalil Whitney like real license to, you know, like we said, with the heat to explore the studio space from the like SNL sketch with more cowbell. Right. Um, He's not going to do that. He's going to lock into what you're good at uh, immediately. And Khalil is going to be an athlete who gets out in transition, who can defend, who can um, back cut, who can maybe space the floor as a spot up guy. I question a little bit uh, if we'll know uh, how good he is until, uh, you know, maybe year two in the NBA, but there have been guys who've broken out for Kentucky before. You know, it's just kind of hard. It, he really did look like someone that uh, had a real chance to break out when I saw him this summer, though.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That's exciting. And uh, we can move on to, I, I think there, there are some European guys I want to discuss, but I want to go to... Is it Oceania? I guess because because technically, uh, uh, RJ is playing for he's playing for
1: the New Zealand Breakers, right? That is correct.
0: So so we can't just say Australia, but Lamelo Ball and RJ Hampton, two intriguing players. And I am you know I'm been a critic of the college basketball system for a while, critic of the age limit as well. And I think there's a a level of intelligence to going to the NBL, the Rising Stars program, get paid a little bit of money, but also the structure of their seasons is very conducive to draft prospects because they can come back, work on their skill, work on their body, but they still get a real season of work in.
1: Yeah, definitely true. Um, very weird year for those two uh, forthcoming because like the guys that we've seen go to the NBL so far are more questionable five-star prospects, right? Like Terrence Ferguson just doesn't have like ball handling ability. And it took him some time to adjust because of his lack of physical frame uh, to the professional level. Brian Bowen just wasn't quite ready after a year of playing uh, or a year of not playing uh, college basketball. So it took him some time to adjust by the end of the year. He was pretty good much with Terrence Ferguson as well. He was pretty solid as like a rotation guy by the end of the year. RJ and Lamelo are full on starting right now. Neither of these guys have the frames to like really be able to deal with the physicality. Lamelo tries, you know, God love the dude. He's been playing against guys that are older and stronger than him basically his whole life. He tries real hard, but like you can just see that his frame is not ready for this yet. With them over there, it's going to be really, really hard to judge for evaluators because neither of these guys are really pre. Producing all that much yet, like I'm sorry to say, like uh, we're all excited about Lamelo Ball. Lamelo Ball is shooting; he has to be running like a 40% true shooting percentage right now after like four or five games. Uh, I believe that RJ Hampton right now. Uh, is like shooting 20% from three and 40% from the field. It's just like this adjustment to the NBL is really hard because these are grown men that are tough and physical that you're playing against. And, it's going to be hard to judge that against other prospects that aren't playing against that. Uh, so it's just like the frame of reference is going to be very difficult.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And it's also challenging with those guys in terms of on versus off ball and all of these other things, and defensively to face people who are much bigger and stronger than you can bring different challenges, though it could be a good experience for them long term.
1: Yeah, so uh, I pulled up LaMelo Ball's numbers so far this year. So he's averaging... 12 points 5.3 assists 5.7 rebounds uh and 2.2 turnovers so he's actually actually like the big thing that he's done exceedingly well so far in the nbl i think is distribute he has all sorts of incredibly creative passes in his toolbox and he does it while not turning the ball over a shit ton which i think is really really impressive but like right now he's running a 40 or no he's running a 41.2 true shooting percentage. Uh he is really really uh struggling to find any sort of space to get his shot off and I think that a big part of the LaMelo Ball equation is the jumper. Uh how good of a shooter do you think he's going to be because he's not some like explosive ass athlete. He's super shifty and super creative. Uh changes speeds really well, can get into the paint, but like at the end of the day, NBA teams are going to let you do that if you can't really finish at the basket as well as you need to or if you can't shoot. So I I don't really know what to do with LaMelo yet. I I think that a lot of the takes that he's in the mix for number one overall, and I said this at the time on my podcast, I think that those are premature. uh, And I think that they've always been a bit premature. I do think he's probably a lottery prospect. But there, there is just a difference in terms of levels. I think right now,
0: yeah, and, and that makes sense to me, especially because for lead guards, the amount of different things that they have to be able to do in order to be viable is just extremely high in the modern NBA. You know, you you basically have to be able to shoot, you have to be able to finish at the rim, and the passing is is important too. And we've seen this at various levels, and there'll, there'll be another big test of that with not only how John Morant. Fairs this year and Darius Garland, but also how Trey and Shea Gilgis Alexander and all these other guys how they develop. So to be a number one pick as a point guard, remember like, number one picks at point guard have been one of fairly recent development though. Obviously there are some in the past like Magic and everything else, but also there have been a mixed bag. I mean, Derek Rose won an MVP and was an amazing player other than injury sidetracking, and Markel Fultz is is kind of the anomaly of anomalies because we don't know exactly like how all this happened. It was largely independent of his draft stock. But it is a reminder that point guards don't always work out even if they have that pedigree.
1: Yeah, no question. Um, obviously, I think that in today's day and age, you want to try and evaluate and select the best lead guard, select the best uh, guy who you think can be an on-ball creator, if only because I think that that is unquestionably the most important position in basketball in this day and age. Um, We can talk about Carl Towns. We can talk about Nikola Jokic. We can talk about Joel Embiid. All three of these guys are absolutely exceptional basketball players who are going to hold down the all-NBA team at the center position for a decade, uh, realistically. But at the end of the day, this is a perimeter-based game now. It's not that I don't think those guys can lead you to titles. I do think so. But they're going to need strong perimeter players to get them there on some level. Otherwise, uh, it's just too hard nowadays to be able to accomplish that feat.
0: Well, and that gets into an idea that I've been really f- fascinated with over the last year or two is the idea of dependent versus independent offensive players, and so how I usually define that is what is required to set you up. So the most independent players are the ones who initiate like I think in some ways Russell Westbrook is the ultimate independent guy here because he's also such an active rebounder, so he does the, the setup for him is often grabbing the defensive rebound. And so then there isn't anybody that really needs to set him up. Whereas the traditional big man is more on the dependent side. They can establish position and maybe they can have a good catch radius and then give him the ball. But somebody has to get it to him. And so if there's bad interior passing, we saw this a little bit in Lakers Clippers on opening night, or various yeah. other uh, various other situations, and get in that. Now, what's fun is we're seeing some of those lines blur. Jokic is an independent center. He, because he has the ball in his hands, he is right. the he is the hub of the wheel. And Carl Anthony Towns, I think Ryan Saunders, and this was true largely last year too once he took over, he's kind of trying to bridge the gap where Towns is not like the primary initiator. He's not doesn't have Jokic's role, but they still want the ball in his hands a lot. And I, I wonder about how that's going to work moving forward too because these bigs, First of all, you have to be insanely good to be worth that. That's uh, something that I've been focusing on over the last couple of years and why I talk so much about those guards that need to be able to play off ball is that you only do these kind of experimentations if the player is worth it.
1: You know, and it's really – fat. like I just wrote about the Cavaliers for my prospect project, right? Like they have now taken lead guards in back-to-back drafts and not just like lead guards, lead guards who – can't do anything but score like both Colin Sexton and Darius Garland. They are not like playmakers for others like Trey Young is. They are not um, guys that can defend and really sit down and get after somebody. Although Colin occasionally does it, his problem is that his mind goes elsewhere off the ball. Um, But I think the Cavs are testing this model in many ways about, How important is it to get a lead guard and should you sell out basically all of your assets, all of your highest end assets to get one? I don't really know what the answer to that question is like me personally. I would probably not go about it the way that they're doing it. Like, I think there's a lot to be said for building, like, a strong developmental culture. And I think that, you know, bringing in multiple guys who play the same position can't play another position realistically. Although Darius played off-ball a decent amount in high school in an AAU, I still think his. there are just going to be diminishing returns if he doesn't have the ball in his hand. Um, how much should you sell out? to get that lead guard into your system. Um, How much of lead guard uh, selection is identification? How much of it is development? Uh, How much of it, is on the player how much of it is on the team to be able to put a competent situation around the player these are things we don't really have an answer to in terms of like development yet uh it's just really really hard to figure all of this out in terms of how to put guys in the right position to succeed but i'm going to be fascinated to see the way that this cavaliers experiment goes because They've essentially decided we're going to use all of our assets to get this all-star lead guard that we think is so important in today's NBA, and we don't really give a shit about anything else.
0: What I think is important and compelling about Kobe Altman's decision is that in the Garland case, not in the Sexton case because I was far lower on Colin Sexton than Altman and then I think draft people overall – is that I thought Garland was the best player available and I think that's what makes this a little bit different so I'm not necessarily willing to go as hard in the like let's damn the torpedoes let's see where all that goes because if he's the best player to me the only time you don't take the best prospect available is if there is a direct conflict with another player and that other player is super well established and the there is not somebody like in that same tier like for example let's say you, have, you evaluate it, and the last guy left in your tier is a center, and a center who can't shoot, and your team has a center who can't shoot. I still take that guy, because if you think they're meaningfully better than everybody else, you bet on your board, and maybe that's what Altman did here.
1: Yeah, but I, I guess that I don't think that a team would place that non-shooting center all that high on their board. True, because and, and, I, and, I just, if,
0: like, and in my hypothetical, you're probably not taking that guy fourth overall.
1: Right, exact. But like here, for instance, like I, Jarrett Culver, one spot ahead of Garland on my board, uh, same tier. So like you know, it's you're splitting hairs between them. They're very different players. There, Uh, one of them is like super high variance, and Garland has a super high ceiling. I think has a pretty low floor to be honest. Uh, Jarrett Culver is going to be really good. Like I I don't really have any doubts about Jarrett figuring things out and being like a starting caliber wing in today's NBA. Does he have more upside than that? Yeah, maybe. But like I, I think that he's going to be a really, really solid starter for a long time. Um, Is there something to be said for taking Jarrett Culver versus Darius Garland and saying, hey, Culver is a really good fit. We'll figure out what we have with Colin here by putting him in a better position to succeed by taking Jarrett. We'll put him in a much more competent situation. We'll have real starters on the wing now and Culver and, you know, Chetty Osman isn't really like a starting quality player yet, but – you know he's at least like an NBA player. Certainly, uh, we get Kevin Love back. We get Tristan Thompson back from injury. You know this is actually going to be like a really interesting situation for elite guard to be able to operate in. Uh, now, Colin, I think from a developmental perspective and from just like an organizational fit perspective, has to be thinking like. All right, like if I if I screw this up on this play, like what's happening here? Like am I going to come out? I know that we're starting both me and Darius, but like now we're sharing the ball. Now there are diminishing returns on both of our games. Like, you know, eventually they're going to have to make a choice, and I just wonder if it's going to be harder for them to make the choice because of the talent they have placed around these guys.
0: Totally legitimate concern. absolutely and ambiguously it is and it makes it harder for them to evaluate and also just the overall talent level being so flawed is is a challenge too because they don't you know as you said with jetty and yeah kevin loves kevin loves good player even though he can't really get any vertical anymore he's still super talented and everything else so that's going to be a challenge for them moving forward it's also why for many reasons, I would support Beeline doing the terminology. I think I came up with this talking with you about the stagger plus, meaning where it's a stagger where one of the two players is on the floor at any given time, but because both players need to play significantly more minutes than that, that they play a lot of time together.
1: Yeah, and I bet that that's probably what the Cavs do, to yeah, be honest.
0: It's not what they did in their first game, though. In Their first game, they treated them as the starting guards, and then they had Deli and Jordan Clarkson as the backups, which I thought was weird.
1: Anytime you can get Jordan Clarkson on the floor, you got to get him on the floor.
0: It is Jordan Clarkson time, indeed. Plenty more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but first a message from, from us. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We'd like to ask you something small, but very important. It only takes a few minutes, and if you're one of the first people to do it, Podcast One will absolutely make it worth your time. We need you to complete a short survey because the information you can give us can help make things better for the show and for you as a listener. So go to podcast1.com survey and everything will be there for you. So it's podcast1.com survey. In case you needed more of an incentive than to help me out, the first 250 people to complete the survey will get a $10 gift card for Amazon and two grand prize winners will be selected random to get a $100 Amazon gift card. It's a really a win-win. You can get money. You have solar to support us out. And our shows are supported by advertisers, so filling it out, help us cater to your needs as a listener. It's big for advertisers. That's what keeps the lights on here. So please go to podcastone.com slash survey, answer some questions, and potentially, hopefully, make some money along the way. Thanks so much for being a dedicated listener. The The last two guys, I and mean, of course we can discuss those people and we'll have time over the course of the year, are the two international prospects that are firmly in the lottery mix right now. And that's, uh, Theo Maladon. And I'm going to butcher this, uh, Denny Avija, uh,
1: Abdia, Avija. Yeah. It's one of the two. We'll figure it out yeah. at some point. We got time. Uh, so, so Theo Maladon plays for Osvel which is Sony Parker's team. Uh, he owns the team. It's where he came up in France. Uh, he is a lead guard, Uh, who's been playing at, like, the French Pro-A, like, elite league level uh, since he was 17 years old uh, last year. Like, he was playing very real minutes. He was a lot more low usage last year. He played, like, sometimes primary, sometimes secondary ball handling. Um, But what I think he does really well is he plays with quickness. Uh, He's, like, a twitchy, twitchy player uh, that also has the ability to, like, really uh slow it down at times he changes pace as well uh he strings out defenders really really well and gets them away from the basket and pick and roll and creates mismatches um really really good body control gets out in transition a ton creates those plays uh 62 true shooting percentage last year is a 17 year old playing uh elite level french basketball it, it's really 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 impressive his thing right now he's also a pretty good defender for being you know this young six foot four twitchy guard uses his length really well his thing right now is definitely he's a little bit more of a scorer than a passer from what i've seen um you know he's good in the open floor as a playmaker hasn't really you know nailed down the reads yet in terms of his half court playmaking but i think they'll come within time uh I'm a big fan. I will have him in my top five to start the year. Uh, It's just hard to find these guys that are uh, potential lead guards with this kind of twitchy athleticism in today's NBA.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. And also, I really enjoy it going back to Ricky Rubio and numerous other guys that when a a young guard can take on high-end European play. Now, the French League isn't quite the same as, as Rubio in the ACB. but No, it's not. When they can take that on early and just go to war because that's pretty much what you have to do when you're playing point guard against grown men.
1: Yeah, and then Denny, you know, it's interesting. He's going to be – I think he's going to be a little bit polarizing in terms of what his upside is because he is one of these guys that's like a six-foot-nine kind of – I don't want to say he's a lead ball handler necessarily, but like he can create with the ball in his hand. He has really, really high level feel for the game. Uh, He is capable of creating plays for his teammates all over the floor with his passing ability. He can create his own shots. Um, He was MVP of the U 20 this year as an 18 year old. Like he is uh, a genuinely very interesting prospect, but I think that, you know, at the NBA level, you have to have a certain level of athleticism to be able to really, really create uh, consistently at that level. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that he has it. Um, maybe he will develop it. But uh, this is a guy that like was not super efficient this year in that U-20 tournament that he won MVP of. Like He shot 43% from the field was 20, uh, 27, 28% from three, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, Not like some elite-level free-throw shooter yet, but he just makes plays. Like He makes things happen on the floor, and there's something to be said for that. Um, just because his feel for the game is as high as it is, uh, he is a guy that is getting EuroLeague, competition already this year and much more of a defined role for, uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv than he did last year where it was kind of hit or miss. Like he'd get some first division minutes, some Euro league minutes. It, it was just like there, there, it wasn't as defined last year for him this year. Uh, you know, he's already started a League game. He's playing. Uh, I, I want to say it's like 15 minutes a night or so, uh, in those settings. It's a super low usage role right now. Like he is playing purely as a role player, but, we've seen enough of what he can do at youth international levels to feel pretty good about him. Hopefully being able to be something of a real draft prospect as like a role playing, creative high feel player who can hopefully develop as a shooter. Because I think that that is uh, the absolute number one swing skill for him. Long-term he has to be able to shoot it so that he can fit tightly into a role.
0: Yeah. It's going to be, uh, uh, I mean, we're seeing it at all, all over the floor. That it's uh, basically. I mean, it, shooting is basically the swing skill for everybody at this point, if, unless they already can shoot. Is that about right? Say that again. S- shooting is basically the swing skill for almost everybody, unless they've already proven it as a non-swing. Like, uh, proven it that it's it's their calling card, basically.
1: Yeah. Unless you're just like Giannis and just some fucking hyper elite. Oh, I'm not supposed to curse on this. I don't think Um, (laughs) some like hyper elite level creator. Yeah. You really got to be able to shoot it and shoot it at a high level. Otherwise it's hard to be able to fit into a role on offense. Now Um, there are just too many really good creators in the NBA. Now you look around, like even like, I just like kind of made fun of Jordan Clarkson a little bit. Like, Jordan Clarkson can get a pretty reasonable look at the end of a shot clock almost whenever he wants. Uh, Like that, that's probably the replacement level as a scorer right now. Uh, Jordan doesn't do anything else. So like, he's certainly not like an awesome NBA player, but um, just purely as a scorer, like that's probably replacement level right now. And that's a, that's an exceptionally high bar to clear because Jordan Clarkson can like really create his shot.
0: Yeah, he can. And, uh, you were talking about guys shooting, and I think that can work as a, a a transition into one of the things that I've done since the last time we talked, which was go to the uh, Team USA Junior National Team minicamp in Colorado can,
1: Springs. Can we pause before we do that? Because I, I do just want to mention Cole Anthony. Like, we oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about Cole. Yeah,
0: let's do that first.
1: Um, Cole, Cole Anthony for me is – I would imagine it's either going to be him – or Anthony Edwards is my number one prospect going into the year. Uh, I have to make that call at some point in the next, you know, week, basically. Um, You know, I guess on some level, like, it doesn't really matter, right? Because uh, this is all going to change, and really it's a fluid process. But, like, it does get, like, noted who your number one player is, right? So Cole is certainly in the mix for that uh, heading into the year. He is... For me, gonna be the most productive college player in the country uh this year, or maybe even college freshmen will say might not be like the most productive player. There might be some small school guys that really take that over, but he's gonna average in that North Carolina up tempo offense, like twenty points, seven assists a game, seven rebounds a game, maybe six assists, something like that. Like he is souped up kobe white in terms of his ability and like kobe white was really good in that offense last year uh cole can really just use his handle to create at such a significant level uh and uses his athleticism really well he has a great handle great feel for changing pace can really change direction off the bounce you get him in the open floor a lot he's going to be absolutely very very good uh I think he is going to be just a total monster this year, and it's a perfect fit for the kind of offense that he's going to be good in, given that North Carolina really runs up-tempo.
0: Yeah, that's going to be fun to watch. And, I mean, it does seem like a natural fit of player in school, too, which is which is encouraging, and some guys don't always do that. And, I mean, we saw it with Duke last year.
1: <laughs> uh, no question. I mean, that uh, – oh, boy. Duke's, Duke's going to be kind of a mess in that regard again, too, this year, for what it's worth.
0: Oh, great! And and I mean the the dark humor of both Zion and RJ going to Duke, team with bad spacing, and then ending up going getting drafted by teams with bad spacing is just insane.
1: Yeah, at least the Pelicans have David Griffin, who is exceptionally good at this, right? And like figured that out, and now they have Drew Holiday and Nikhil Alexander Walker, and uh, obviously JJ Redick and. Uh, you know, Derek favors can stretch it out from mid range a little bit, even though he probably did a little bit too much in the first game. Like they're, they're at least building something around Zion that makes sense.
0: Right. And I, and I think it'll be better around RJ at some point too. It's just, I don't have as much trust in their front office because their front office has not deserved that trust
1: yeah i was gonna say uh you uh you have more faith than i do my friend
0: oh i i yeah i, I just think that with where the league is going it'd be kind of hard to do this like you know this is kind of like finding plutonium by accident like just how poorly constructed this Knicks team is and even even uh, throwing darts at a dartboard another time would get you better
1: results yeah yeah that's uh <sighs> oh boy new york i'm sorry guys i uh I, I would love nothing more. I'm gonna be at MSG like in two weeks. Like I would love nothing more than the Knicks to be like really good. That'd right. be so fun. I think.
0: Well, that's one of the craziest things about this is basically the entire sports media, but especially basketball media core, is rooting for the Knicks to be good because it would be good for all of us. You know, like it would be more clicks, it would be more engagement. We almost everybody loves covering stuff at MSG, and it's it's a a hub for. Basically every life for basically every airline because of all the airports there, and yet no no
1: no yeah, yeah on the plus side at least uh, James Dolan isn't dialing NBC news reporters and uh, <laughs> leaving long voicemail well, messages
0: yeah but I mean could it maybe happen a couple of times so we can just get the team in somebody else's hands like <laughs> that, would, that would that would whatever by any means necessary people like people in james dolan's life if we get, if we can get somebody else to run the knicks that would be wonderful
1: oh boy oh boy
0: uh but let's, let's go to the the previously teased uh yeah. usa mini camp it was so i'll, I'll talk a little bit and i'm going to start my piece for the athletic with this of, of the experience because it was an event that i've never covered before i don't know if you have um or something similar have to I it have i
1: been there uh that's a good question I don't know if I've been to that one. I've been to one before. I don't yeah, know if so it was that one necessarily, though.
0: Yeah, yeah, because they do a series of events. The USA Olympic Training Facility is in beautiful Colorado Springs, and it, it's it's an interesting kind of challenge because unless you are extremely dedicated, the idea is basically that you're going to get a loose understanding of a lot of different guys because the way they have it structured is that I think it were it was between eighty and eighty five players and also some guys got hurt so you have that and they were split into largely upperclassmen and underclassmen and then or lowerclassmen and then split into a total of 8 teams four for each one of those groups and then they would do drills and scrimmages from that and so I, on two different in two different gyms that were close but you couldn't see both gyms at the same time you had to be in one or the other and so what that led to was you know, first of all, you're getting a lot of sample bias because or small samples and sample bias stuff because it's like you might just see a guy when he's playing well and then the afternoon session or the next day he's not doing well. And that that's part and parcel of the experience. It was the same thing when you and I did a, these nations together and numerous other things. But it also, like, yeah. I... Go ahead.
1: Well, nations is interesting just because all the courts are next to each other, which right. makes it a lot easier. Yeah,
0: so nations, that's true. That, that was an important distinction. So, like, I ended up watching a lot of the sixteen year olds at That Nations which included Zion Williamson. And so I got to see him him then. I was just intrigued by those guys as much as the Ayton class, which was the they were high school going into high school or the seniors at that point. And yeah, so I, I, I thought that from my perspective, also I was not looking at it from a college. I mean a lot of these guys, especially even some of the guys that I didn't particularly like, they still high major college guys. You know, it's not that, but I was looking at it from an MBA perspective. And you are looking at it from I, – I just had to get used to calibrating for players who were that young because let's say Hoop Summit or Adidas Nations, though there were some younger guys there. I'm generally seeing guys, unlike you, basically at the end of their senior year of high school. That's really pr- – uh, prior to this, that was really the first time I've been seeing these guys. Dewan Wagner Jr., and yes, that feels super weird to say, he's a freshman in high school and just starting his freshman year of high school so that is an entirely different thing i mean you could think about all of us were unless you're still too young all of us were 14 years old once think about how much you changed from 14 to 18 and that's the kind of calibration that we all who are nba like in my spot have to do when you're looking at this kind of players
1: yeah it is exceptionally hard to evaluate 14 year olds like i don't Amani Bates didn't go to that, right?
0: He did not. Bates didn't go. Cade Cunningham didn't go, but C- Cunningham sold her. Yeah, so that that was a little bit of a disappointment.
1: So- but, but like with Bates, it, well, with Bates, it's interesting just because like he's obviously this guy who everyone is discussing as uh, like a can't miss kid with you know all of the upside in the world because his game is so polished from the time that he's so young, and it's not that I don't think Amani Bates is great. Like Amani Bates is exceptional. He is super, super good for his age. The thing is though, like Amani Bates also just came in at the Nike Basketball Academy and had like an even wingspan measurement to his height. So like that really that kind of stuff like really does matter as you move up the levels and as you try and fill out your frame. And like I think that honestly like that kind of a measurement should really like cease the Kevin Durant comparisons because like part of what makes Kevin Durant such an, an unbelievable shot creator is that he has like a seven, five wingspan and has a super high release point and is just like exceptional in terms of being able to get that shot whenever he wants because of that uh ability to get separation is just like a little bit easier. Like the money base like, doesn't have that physical, you know, outliery tendency. Right.
0: Right. And and again, it's it's worth remembering just like how few you you and I have talked about it. Ben Taylor and I had an extended conversation about this about, you know, like when guys get compared to Draymond Green, there's only one Draymond Green for a reason. And those Draymond
1: Green is the most unbelievable, like, like prospect in the world. Like he is six foot six with a plus eight wingspan with like what? one of the top five basketball IQs ever. So he's an outlier physically. He's an outlier in terms of like mental acuity. Like he's one in a million physically and one in a million in terms of like uh, basketball IQ. We ain't finding another dude like that. Like people kept comparing like PJ Washington to Draymond Green and they'll compare, you know, X, Y, and Z to Draymond Green. You you might find like a player type like that, dude. You ain't going to find another Draymond Green. That's just not happening.
0: Right, and I think that's a healthy way of, of thinking about it, Sim- similar in many ways with KD. And, I mean, I, I admit that I was lower on KD as a prospect, mostly because I think I've gotten better at evaluating offensive talent. So, yeah, and, and it actually does come up. KD comes up a little bit in this in this class. I'll, I'll do some big picture stuff very briefly first. It was jarring to see a camp full of 14 through 18-year-olds where everyone was expected to shoot. You know, when they did shooting drills, it was not oh, the big men are shooting mid-rangers. Nope, everybody's shooting quarter threes. Everybody's shooting above the break. That's just what it is now. And I'm a full supporter of it. I think it's a very good thing for the sport. Also, you know, they're not shooting NBA threes. They're shooting the college FIBA line, all that kind of stuff. But that was really interesting to me. And then the other part that was incredibly encouraging was because of this this development where guys at all – at all positions, are getting a little bit more opportunity to have the ball in their hands. And remember, these are elite talents. This is, like, some of the 80 best kids at every, like, so let's say top 20 or 15 in their high school class. Even forward-sized guys, had. there were some of them that had really nice passing. And I was, you know, even if they're not, like, a primary ball handler, it's just like, Oh wow, they can make that sort of a read where you see NBA forwards yeah. that sometimes can't get there. And I don't know if was, that's was
1: uh, was Paulo Banchero there?
0: He was not. Um one of the guys so, that yeah. I and I'm gonna butcher a lot of names with this because you did very very rarely heard them said, but I think it was uh Jericho Walker or Waller was, was really interesting. He was one of the seniors. Um uh, I'm gonna butcher so many names in this. But he, he and there were Shy Odom I thought had some really nice passes. And just you wouldn't necessarily see that. Greg Glenn, another guy who I, I really liked his passing. And so that was interesting, but I think the more more compelling part – and remember, I'm going at this with no knowledge of players' star rankings. Where they're, If they're committed anywhere, apparently a lot of guys are committing later now, so a lot of guys just aren't committed. My favorite guy in the entire camp was Joshua Christopher, and he's okay. – that that was it's not necessarily that he's going to be the best probe i mean i'll talk about another guy who i think is going to be there but what i liked about christopher and it's something i think you liked about josh jackson but i like it more with christopher than with josh jackson is that he i like his jump shot i like his handle but he has good vision and unselfishness for a guy with his skill set and i just really like that it's the type of player that can fit in well in the nba those mild chestnut of two dribbles and a good decision. He's a lot better than that, but it's a sign for a player who is, you know, still a senior in high school that he was, well, there were times in transition where he could have gotten a shot. You know, he could have done the pull up from or maybe even got to the basket, but he realized that drawing the attention and passing the ball to somebody else would get that person an easy dunk. And in a setting where, you know, he's not the unambiguous number one player in his class, that was something I learned when I I started talking with him. They're like, oh, really? You liked him number one? And then you would hear little bits about that he's not near that in this class. But...
1: he's he's up there, though. Yeah. Like, he's he's like a consensus five-star, like, very high-level I I just I just
0: really liked his game. And then in the, uh, the lower classmen, the guy that was the most intriguing to me was Jabari Smith Jr. And... Jabari Smith had he has this double that I genuinely love in a player really at any age which is that he's big like he's 16 years old and 68 and he and I I'm guessing he has a plus wingspan I don't know that for sure yet but and he has a lot of the small guy tools you know handle and I think this will inevitably lead to some people comparing him to Kevin Durant his offensive game is not near KD and not near KD at that age either and but what I like about Smith is, 6'8", mentioned all that, you know, he was one of the bigger guys on his team and usually among the competition. He did big guy stuff, too. Like, he would crash the offensive glass, he would do help blocks, or if he was in position, he would actually just be the rim protector. And players who are willing to do that, who, who like the small guy stuff but are still willing to bang, and that ends up usually boating really well for them. Now, the passage of time might clarify Smith's role; like he might size out of being a small guy. But I just like players that have that mentality of "I'll do whatever I can to beat you."
1: So that's the 2021 class. The two guys that uh, people are most excited about that were at that camp in 2021, um, Patrick Baldwin mm-hmm. is one of them. Six foot ten shooter. Like I honestly think, like that guy is a 16 year old. He might be the best 16-year-old shooter I've ever seen. Yeah,
0: his stroke is nice. Like, I, I, was, I was really impressed with that. And it's so crazy considering how well most of his career went until things have fallen off recently. But I was watching him and thinking, well, he could kind of be Ryan Anderson right now. And he's 16. <laughs> so right, development like, and everything else. Like, and he did some nice movement off the ball. It's not just, oh, he has a projectable jump shot. I think Baldwin unusually for a player of his age has an understanding of like kind of what his role might be. And it's just like, yeah, I can do that.
1: And then the other one in the 2021 class is Chet Holmgren. Uh, People are very, very enthused by Chet Holmgren. Who's like this seven foot tall, 190, 200 pound kid um, out of Minnesota who can really shoot it, can really handle the ball at his size. Like he's, I've seen, like I've seen him a good amount. He's very interesting. Uh, I have not seen him like, play at his best, though, like from what I've been told is his best.
0: Yeah, I didn't watch as much of Holmgren. I saw him a few times and I, you know, he to me, the I, this is probably praise, though I was genuinely unsure at the time that I didn't think about the stuff he was doing for his size because I didn't think about him as being as tall as he is. So generally, that's a good thing, because that means that you're not looking, you know, you're moving pretty well and, not, and you're not doing the like Kristaps Porzingis. Oh, wow, he moves well for a seven footer if you actually right. are that that's generally a good thing um i have heard that he d- is better as a rim protector i didn't see much of it but i do think that was just the sample i saw it wasn't like he was bad it was just that it didn't pop to me as much um the other guy that i, th- I think has to be talked about in the same high level is is evan mobley committed to usc super talented physical guy i mean he's he's so skinny i mean you get that but his defensive tools are fantastic And he has the frame to become stronger and all that type of stuff. And and he's going to be really good. What both concerned and intrigued me, and, and I thought about just straight up bringing him up during the James Wiseman discussion, is I was more skeptical than the people I talked with about Mobley's offensive game. It felt really robotic to me. But what I liked about it was... A little bit of that. But what I liked about it was he's kind of a little bit robotic and a little bit skilled in all of the different archetypes that modern big men do so like he's an okay shooter he tries to do things a little bit within he's not a bad back to the basket passer like so he has kind of these little pieces and I was thinking about you know how he develops at SC his dad's a coach there but apparently he and his brother work hard and they're well taught and all that and then obviously Mobley will be a pro probably a year from now and that he'll so
1: be two years two from years now, from now yeah.
0: yeah two years from now and what I like about a player like that, and this could be true with Wiseman as well is, well, he's only going to have to do one of those things. Like he's not, I don't think of Mobley as a high usage big. Like that's not to me. He doesn't have that kind of acuity. And you generally do see that in, in those anomalous bigs early. I mean, granted, I didn't see it with Joel Embiid because Joel Embiid wasn't playing, but with Towns, I, I mean, a lot of people did with Jokic people did. it was just candy get in shape and all that kind of stuff. So and there's no shame in a defensively active, dominant, and Mobley's ceiling on that end is pretty high. I mean, he was just crushing stuff, um, that they don't have to be a high usage guy. Not everybody has to do that. And a lot of times for centers for me, not burning the candle at both ends can be
1: valuable. I mean this in terms of style, not necessarily in terms of how good he is. Um, he reminds me a lot of Tim Duncan in terms of like the way he plays offensively. And defensively, honestly, like his game just reminds me a lot of Tim Duncan. Like he does that same stuff where he can really shoot it. Um, He can really use his handle to get into advantageous situations, to use his high release point to shoot it from the mid range, Um, can use his handle to get all the way to the basket in a way that looks very robotic, kind of like you said, right? Um, Again, like I don't think he's going to be anywhere near as good as Tim Duncan is. He's one of the 10 best players ever, but like, Just in terms of the way that he plays basketball, he is the player who reminds me most of Tim Duncan that I can remember since Tim Duncan retired.
0: What will be definitive if he goes along that line for Mobley is physical strength. I mean, that part of what what Duncan's combination of touch, strength, and length was just so special. And, And, you know, you could be worse than Tim Duncan and still be a Hall of Famer, much less a solid pro. And right. And it might I'm guessing that Mobley ends up, you know, not in that rare air, just on the law of large numbers. Uh, I know you have you don't have much time. So I'll just mention a couple other guys briefly. Greg Brown, Jr. is this insane athlete. It wouldn't it I would honestly surprise me if he doesn't get into a dunk contest, if he makes the if he makes it to the NBA. And he yeah, did he's some, a freak show. He did something that I've I honestly can't remember ever seeing it before. He basically, he would be in the corner of my eye all the time because he's like, he he had probably five of the six best dunks I saw during the entire weekend. But also in the quote unquote championship game, he dunked so hard he hurt his right wrist. So then he just started blocking shots yeah. left-handed. And it was just crazy. Like you say they were like, this is not a big, he's not a big, he's a wing and he's a talented athlete. And I think he's, he just, he's, a,
1: he's a four, I think, I, I think like he's, he's like, like just, a yeah. spacing four.
0: I think he just did it because he's like, well, I can jump high enough, and I I don't want to use my right hand because it hurts, so I'm just going to start blocking shots left-handed. So it wasn't—I don't think it was necessarily a skill thing. It was just a, I'm a good enough athlete to pull this off. I absolutely loved that. Um, The IMG Academy guys were interesting just because they're so physically developed. I wouldn't say he was necessarily great as a prospect, but Brandon Hunter Hatfield, who's 16, he looks like— at least a college player right now. He kind of looks physically like an NBA player, and at 16, like I was a little bit scared of that. Like that shouldn't happen. You know, you have to you you know you work yourself into it, and probably full credit to to Brandon and, and IMG Academy for doing that kind of stuff. I like Jalen Curry, I, I, and you can read my piece. I'm mean, going to have a lot of a lot of stuff on these kind of like smaller guys, but it was a really fun event, and it's. You know, it's it's good to see these players compete against other high-end talent because, you know, high school talent can be so dispersed and oh, they were really getting after it. Like this meant a lot to those guys.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of the younger guys in this class necessarily. Like I've seen basically everyone in the class of 2020 a bunch. Um, I've seen some of the 2021 guys like Devin Askew, Patrick Baldwin, Chet Holmgren, um, Kennedy Chandler, Paolo Boncero, or Paolo Bonchero, Like a lot, a lot of the higher end guys as well. Um, but yeah, like I, I'm kind of bummed that I didn't get to go. Like it was just uh, you know, I'm working through this massive prospect project, and it's insane. And there's just so many so many words to write. Um, but I am bummed that I didn't get to go because this is. Uh, it's always a really fun event, I think, to check out, and it's always, uh, uh, it's, you know, from the time that I went and have been to a Hoop Summit, like, I think USA Basketball does an exceptional, exceptional job of putting, putting players in position to be evaluated. Right.
0: And one last thing. I was super encouraged by how much time the coaching people, I think we're just more like high school coaches, put into fundamental things like communication on defense and attention to detail and things that high school coaches might not necessarily get into their guys. And I mean, something that players have talked about with me, NBA players, a lot is you have to get used to communication because that's what the NBA defense is built on. And a lot of times that doesn't happen until the NBA. So the earlier they get it, the better
1: yeah no question that's absolutely right like phil beckner was there i mean phil is like damian lillard's guy you know what i mean like uh he is uh he is as exceptional as it comes when it uh comes down to training and uh setting up guards for success uh there are a few few trainers i believe are better than phil and like he's just there teaching these guys uh some of the tricks of the trade i think it's super valuable
0: Okay, well, I know you have to go, so I will thank you so much
1: for taking the time. Yeah, of course, anytime. I'm uh, I'm really glad we got to do this.
0: Thanks again to San Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at The Athletic, you can listen to the excellent Game Theory podcast, and if you don't already, you should follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. As you all know, Sam is absolutely one of my favorites. And before we go, I I had a really quick conversation that I had a lot of fun with with Dave Mason of BetOnline.dg.com asking him about something that I've been interested in for a little while now, which is in-game betting. So I kind of learned the logistics of it, what he thinks is most interesting, so you can check that out. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. One of the elements of, of your business that I find really interesting, and I, I've done a little bit of it myself because it's I just find it so fun, fun, is in-game wagering. And so what that is is, you know, obviously there there's a lot of work done. You and I have talked about it before in terms of lines that are set pregame, but you can also, on betonline.ag, wager once things have already started
2: yeah absolutely live betting is still something that's uh, that's fairly new to uh u s facing market um you know north American including canada it, It's been big in Europe for years and uh you know probably only started really getting bigger in the u s you know within the last decade and every year it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. um I shoot I remember the first time I saw it back in like two thousand and seven on a on a European book. I was like, holy hell look at this really cool. But, um yeah, live betting, for those who don't know it, it's, you know, of course you know how to bet the game pregame, but once the game kicks off or tips off or whatever, um the, the odds continue throughout the game with every basket, with every field goal, with every first down, the odds are changing throughout the game. Point spread, money line total, and all sorts of other good stuff. So, you know, it keeps people in the action All game long, Um, you had people, you got people hedging, betting both sides of of a close game, uh, going for middles, um, hedging their pregame bets, um, trying to bail out of their pregame bets, etc., etc. So it's a lot of fun. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people bet for the action and and there's no better action than in-game betting.
0: Right, and I and I love that everybody, you know, especially if you've been watching the game, you're working with additional information and different information. So maybe something happens totally, but of course, everything's suggesting it's not. You you don't get the same line ten minutes in because you have ten more minutes of information.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, you, you can have a you can have a much better price or <laughs> than you would have had ten minutes ago, or worse price. That that's where the game comes in, and. Uh... You know, you got to be quick on the draw, and and uh, when I used to when I used to bet a lot of live, going back again, probably over a decade ago, I used to love trying to bet those games that you know, those I used to call them flip flop games, where uh, you know the game, the scores just going back and forth. Team X is one plus one tonny favorite then then next then the other team's a plus one thirty. It keeps on going back and forth, and I just try to lock up a lot of money line action on on plus plus um, each side, so. Yeah, you, you know, you and you get a lot of that. Guys going for medals, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine that. And yeah, there there are opportunities for arbitrage and everything else when when you work that way. And you talked about that before and hedging and everything else. So yeah, it's. It's fun, and also because it can apply in so many different circumstances, whether it's, you know, like maybe you, you saw something at halftime and you think the team that's behind is going to make a comeback, or it could just be, oh, they're going to put their pedal to the metal and it's going to be game over.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you got to be quick on the draw, right? You don't have a whole week to or a whole day to handicap this game. You've you got to handicap that game in seconds. That being said, so do we. You know, so do our guys. Our guys have to handicap that stuff quick, so... Um, you know, it's quick on the draw. It's it's kind of, you know, betting on crack, right? Sports betting on crack. You're just getting your fix in and you're just betting. And the, the the game changes at pick six and all of a sudden the odds come off the board quick and then they go back up and then you, you wait to see what those odds are. If you think there's value, great. And uh, the odds are moving every play. So if you like the action, live betting's for you.
0: It's entirely possible that you don't, but do you have any idea, or even from your own experience, which, which sports or leagues you think are are most popular or most interesting for this concept?
2: Um, personally, I think um, with all the swings, basketball, I mean, I think basketball is just made for live betting, or live betting is made for basketball. You know, I, I used to do a lot more football uh, myself. Uh, we had to be more patient, I think with football on, on, some, on the typical game, you know, there, there's games all over the place and all c- kind of scores. But, uh, I think this basketball with, with, I mean, how many times you see it? I mean, every day, every team goes on a run, you know, it doesn't matter who the hell is playing. Every team's going to go on a 10, 12 point run or whatever. And those odds, Start flying up on the other team, and and you take advantage of that, and and then next thing, you know the other team goes on a damn run. That that that's what I, again. That was my strategy live betting. That's how I used to do it. Just like seeing seeing that value on that plus money dog, and 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 trying to get get down on both sides at plus money or a nice middle and nice hedge. And um yeah, so so I, I think basketball is the best for live betting. And again, that's my opinion.
0: Yeah. People can can make their own, but it's it's something really fun to engage in a different kind of challenge. Well, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks again to Dave Mason for taking the time to come on. You can check out A G. and of course, thanks to Sam Vicini for his contributions. The Athletic Game Theory Podcast, Sam underscore Vicini, where to check that out. We are now into the NBA regular season. If you want my kind of day-by-day day insight check out dunked on the podcast I do when they duncan that's more of this that's more of where that stuff will go and you can also see my writing which is at the athletic which is sometimes topical sometimes not it really depends on what kind of project I'm working on you can also check out the piece that Sam and I talked about a little bit about my thoughts on the team USA national junior national team minicamp that will be out probably early next week I'm, I'm working on it right now but it'll have to go through editorial and I have to actually finish it for If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast wherever you're choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I understand if it's not. If you want to be super awesome, if you use something else, you can actually leave a review both places. Also, super important for this show, subscribe download every episode. Very important for metrics and all that fun stuff. And and also, because this is a show that doesn't come out on a specific day, you can't really get in any sort of habits. That's why subscribing is really good. It'll pop into your player whenever it's ready. And the most important thing you can do with this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors, betonline.ag, use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus, and then take the little survey that we have. It's only a few minutes. PodcastOne.com slash survey. Big help to Real Jam Radio. Big help to me personally, so I really do appreciate that. Any input you have, good, bad, or indifferent, nba at gmail.com is the way to share that information. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't promise that I'll respond, but they go into a separate page of my inbox. I, I make sure that I read them every day before I go to bed because it's important to me and I don't want to waste your time. And that can be guest input. It can be thoughts on a show, whatever whatever it really is. And I, I do really appreciate it. It's changed the show so much over the years. I'm probably going to wait, if I can, wait another week before really getting into the NBA stuff. I try not to overreact or anything like that, have some really good guests lined up for down the line, but I don't want to do anything like, hey, what did these first four days mean? Or anything like that. That's not... I, I do that other places, but I don't want to do that here if I can avoid it. But lots of great things going on, lots of storylines, and plenty to discuss here on Real GM Radio. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.